Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. To unleash the full power of the federal government in this effort today, I am officially declaring a national emergency. Two very big words. The action I am taking will open up access to up to $50 billion of very importantly, very important and a large amount of money for states and territories and localities in our shared fight against this disease. We have to continue practicing social distancing. And if you do not feel well, for God's sake, stay home. In an abundance of caution, I am ordering the closure of all K-12 school buildings. We have reached a tipping point where the spread of this virus demands that we take action. We are getting into a situation where the only analogy is war. The President of the United States said anybody who needs a test can get a test. That was not true. It still is not true. We do not have enough tests. Where are the tests? Frankly, the testing has been going very smooth. If you go to the right agency, if you go to the right area, you get the test. The system is not really geared to what we need right now. That is a failing. It is clear to me, at least, that we have an administration that is largely incompetent. Labeling COVID-19 a foreign virus does not displace accountability for the misjudgments that have been taken. President Trump has no higher priority than the health and safety of the people of this country. Save it for another day. We can have an after-action review about how we got into this situation. Save it for another day. Stocks post their worst one-day losses in more than 30 years. All of the NCAA championships in all sports for the winter and spring seasons, those will be canceled as well. Sophie Trudeau, the prime minister's wife, has in fact tested positive. A Brazilian government official has tested positive for coronavirus, and his results come just days after he spent the evening with President Trump and Vice President Pence at Mar-a-Lago. I think Mr. Trump is going to try to spin this, but you can't spin death. This is a scary and uncertain time we're in. We hope that you are safe. We hope you're planning and taking proper precautions. It's also a time when many of us are struggling to balance day-to-day life in this new normal of school cancellations, shuttered offices, lost work and travel. And of course, there's still a presidential race going on. On Friday morning, I sat down with Maya King, a reporting fellow at Politico, Joel Payne, a Democratic strategist, and Ruby Kramer, politics reporter at BuzzFeed News, covering Democrats. Here's our conversation. We're going to start off, of course, with the coronavirus. Maya, I want to start with you, but everyone else, feel free to to jump in as well. One of my concerns in these last few years has long been, how does a country as polarized as ours respond to a real crisis? And the other day, USA Today had a poll that showed 72 percent of Republicans trusted Trump on the issue of leading on this issue. Of course, just 14 Democrats agreed. 56 percent of Democrats trust the news media. Just 23 percent of Republicans do. So how do we possibly go on, fight a pandemic when we can't agree of which sources we trust to tell us what's what's true and what's not? 
Well, if a happy medium, is it all possible um, in this current political climate? I think it happens closer to home. I've noticed that in the midst of a lot of political polarization, folks are a bit more apt to trust in their local and state officials. I've seen, um, you know, much more trust placed in governors, uh, in the leadership of folks like Andrew Cuomo, Jay Inslee. These are the people that, um, you know, have been able to tap into state resources to declare states of emergency and bring immediate help to folks in really um, affected areas. And that that plays into the the level of trust. And then I think it's also just going to take time. Uh, Yesterday... This week, we we noticed that over time, uh, more folks, as the week has progressed, have gotten closer to understanding the gravity um, of the situation and, and of the crisis that that we're facing. Um, and so as the stories continue to develop and, and people that are trusted and that are public validators continue to push the message that this is something to be taken seriously, I believe that more folks um, will start to take the precautions that they need to. Mm. What do you think, Joel? Um, These are the moments where coming together matters, but also where competence matters. Um, You know, uh, President Trump has really benefited um, up until this point from being the zig to everybody's zag and from being different and being standout and not following convention. And it's in moments like these that don't really play in his favor. Um, Right now, Americans are craving competence, confidence um, boring, stale, trusted leadership. Um, and this president is incapable of getting out of his way, not because he doesn't have the core ability to process information, but it seems like because he doesn't have a desire to. And I think that's what is is frustrating to a lot of Americans. And I do think that those partisan splits that you highlighted before are going to really start to level out because Mm -hmm. I can tell you um, when issues hit home like this, um, it starts to transcend politics. Um, I've seen polling that would suggest that 70, 80 percent of Republicans are aware of this issue and are concerned about it. Um, And so this becomes a test um, that that does start to transcend politics. And it reminds me of 2008, um, the Barack Obama versus John McCain presidential race, when we saw how two candidates had an opportunity to respond to a crisis. That was the financial crisis, obviously, at that time. Barack Obama was kind of a steady hand of leadership and um, demonstrated how he would lead in crisis. Um, John McCain, God rest his soul, um, did not necessarily respond with the same steady, cool, even-headedness that a Barack Obama displayed. And it did make a difference in how Americans viewed each leader in terms of how they would process information. I think President Trump is disadvantaged right now. Um, I don't know if Joe Biden is a crisis guru, but I do think that the difference between the two speeches were stark from one day to the next. Ruby, you cover the Democratic candidates, and I'm wondering if you can help us understand how they are uh, dealing in this time, um, both as Joel pointed out, to try to project the sort of steady calmness, but at the same time, they're also trying to win the Democratic nomination. How do you balance those things? Right. Uh, I just came back from two weeks on the road with Bernie Sanders, and I think we hit something like 13 states. And by the way, we're around crowds of tens, 20,000 people at a time. Not ideal. Uh, But I think even over that time, over that time period, and especially over the last week, you saw the candidates themselves realizing how serious this is. I mean, Bernie Sanders, who 
is a, to be clear, 78-year-old man with an underlying health condition, i.e. an at-risk patient for the coronavirus, uh, sort of laughed off questions from the press for pretty much all week leading up to, I'd say this week, Monday, when really hit, when the stock market really took a tumble um, and when people started going to self-quarantine and the cases were spiking, he laughed off questions about how he himself was going to be taking care of of himself and trying to protect his health through all of this. And I think at one point, uh, we were in Detroit before before the last round of contests and, and he was like, well, I'm pretty busy running for president I don't have time to worry about this. And I think very quickly realized that this was not really something to joke about. And just over the last last couple of days, you saw both Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders give pretty serious uh, addresses on the coronavirus, on what sorts of precautions should be taken, but also how we should respond with regard to healthcare policy and making sure that everybody has the care that they need, especially people who might be affected by not being able to go to work, having their kids home from school, um, not being able to maybe being fearful of going to the doctor to get a test or get testing done or admit themselves into care simply because they don't have insurance. Amy, I'd add to, to what Ruby and Maya said as well. Um, you know, the, the way we process these moments are so telling. So the president is treating this as a financial crisis, which it has become, but it is first and foremost a public health crisis. And I think that is very revealing about how this president thinks and his entire approach to governing and government um, and or, or lack of approach to governing and government, um, that the president does not understand that this cannot be fixed by the Fed um, adjusting interest rates or by, um, you know, simply bailing out companies like, sure, there are short term fixes that can help. But at the end of the day, this is a governing challenge and this is a public health challenge. And you have a president that has spent the last three years breaking down confidence in institutions, in government, in science. So it's very hard to turn on a dime and ask people to trust your administration of the thing that you've been attacking for the last three years. And I do think that it's a moment like this where, again, Donald Trump has really been the beneficiary of a very unconventional way of governing. And I think in this moment, it works against him. Well, Maya, I want you to weigh in on that because this is very true. This is a very unique moment. Mm -hmm. It also seems, though, that over the course of the last three and a half years, we've had a lot of unique moments yes. where we say, okay, this is the thing. This is the thing that is going to ultimately weigh down President Trump's um, chances of winning re-election. This is going to change everything. And then a couple weeks later, a couple months later, we've moved on. How will we know if this is going to still resonate a couple months and certainly by November of next year? Of well, this year. I think that we can start to look at um, the stories out of China, out of Italy, out of South Korea, where near and dear friends and loved ones are dying. And those stories are becoming more and more prevalent now. They're making their way to, you know, general American household conversations. And that's scaring people. And I think to Joel's point, it's an excellent one that the president has turned this into a crisis of his own making, he's also made it a political crisis when it is indeed a public health crisis, which has almost lent 
uh, the Democratic candidates a lifeline in many ways because this is something new for them to campaign on. Uh, you know, Senator Sanders has an opportunity now to really drill home uh, the importance of Medicare for all, of a public option, of access to affordable health care for all. And Joe Biden will have the opportunity to flesh that out a bit more on his side and try to grab more progressive voters and also say, look, I have been running for months now on this platform of a steady hand of leadership. Here's my opportunity to show you exactly what I'll do. And we got that a little bit this week from both of the candidates giving their speeches and and, you know, showing American voters what their plans would be. Um, And even Elizabeth Warren weighed in, you know, with her with her own plans for things. So. It's it's heating up and there's an opportunity now for folks to really show who they are. Ruby, you had a terrific piece in BuzzFeed this week titled The Week Bernie Sanders Realized He Was Losing. One of the takeaways I got from this was from your story was that Sanders, while he learned a lot from his 2016 campaign, was never really able or willing to expand his coalition. And most recently, it impacted his ability to even get Elizabeth Warren's endorsement. Um, I'd love for you to talk to us about that. Yeah, it's it's funny because in in ways he he really did did try and he he was able to at least make one area of real growth, which was with Latinos. Um, I mean, we saw his massive victory in Nevada, uh, but that was during a time when the field was still quite fractured and the moderate vote to be a little reductive about it was split and Elizabeth Warren was still in the race. And when it came down to a two person contest with Joe Biden, he just, he just got totally clobbered, not only in super Tuesday, but in the last round of contests mm-hmm. in Michigan, which is a state where he really needed to prove that he could reach out to black voters and to uh, working class voters. And he was hoping to drive up the vote specifically in Muslim communities around Detroit. And he just, couldn't get it done. Um, More people just voted for Joe Biden. And yeah, I mean, he, the interesting thing about comparing 2016 versus 2020, in 2016, Bernie Sanders had never done this before. He really leaned on advisors that he hired, uh, a pollster that he hired. He had media consultants, like expensive, (laughs) expensive uh, firm that you can hire to do your ads. And in 2020, he felt like he had already done it. He and Jane wanted to drive the ship. They fi- they 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 split ways with their media consultant, um, and he kind of gathered a, a new group of folks around him, folks who hadn't been with him in prior races. And I, I really think this was Bernie Sanders' campaign, and he did some really interesting things with it. But one thing he was not able to do was grow on the base of voters that he had in 2016, where he, at the end of the day, got 42% of the vote against Hillary Clinton. And that's just not what we're seeing this time around. And I think it's been a hard realization for him, honestly. Right. Um, Joel, let's talk about what's coming up, um, a debate between two candidates. Again, we spent a lot of time talking about how coronavirus impacts us. But these two are, are they're still opponents trying to get the Democratic nomination. Joe Biden is very much ahead in the delegate race. Going to be very hard for Bernie Sanders to ever catch up. How do you prepare for something like this? I mean, you've been on campaigns. What do you do if you're Joe Biden? What do you do if you're the Bernie Sanders campaign? What kind of advice would you be giving them? Well, we're entering a new phase of the race. So we were, um, as recently as two weeks ago, in the chaotic, everybody freak out phase of the race. And I think now we are in the 
organized wind down of the Democratic primary. And I think even Bernie Sanders has somewhat alluded to that with his rhetoric in the past week or two. Um, I think if you're Bernie Sanders, your goals now are about how do you keep your legacy platform items on the minds of Democratic voters? And how do you secure commitments from a Joe Biden and the people around Joe Biden to make sure that that's represented in what presumably will be a Biden candidacy that will carry forward? And if you're Joe Biden, you have to find a way to open up the tent to bring in that Sanders wing of the party to make sure you're not alienating those folks, but that you're making them feel welcome. And and Joe Biden signaled that in his most recent, um, you know, victory night speech that didn't feel like a victory night speech because we were all beginning the process of social distancing. Um, one quick thing on Bernie Sanders related to Ruby's story that I think is interesting. You know, Sanders has always been more comfortable, I think, as the insurgent. Um, and it's very telling that, this race, when he became the front runner, I almost feel like it's an ill-fitting suit mm -hmm. that he didn't wear well. And, um, you know, he has never figured out how to lead from the front. Also, the, the Sanders bet was a bet that you could take a quixotic campaign within the establishment of the party and grow it to be the standard bearer mm -hmm. campaign of the party. And so I think he felt like I could be the Donald Trump of the left. I'm sure he would reject that moniker because he doesn't agree with his politics. But instead, it feels more like Ron Paul. Um, and it feels more like kind of other quixotic mm -hmm. campaigns that we've seen um, have, a, have a high floor but a low ceiling. Right. And that's, that may end up being Bernie Sanders' political legacy in this moment. Maya, um, in the couple minutes we have left, you as a political reporter normally would be saying, all right, well, I'm going to go cover this campaign or let's go to the battleground states or check in on a Senate race. You can't do that now, right? Um, no. So how do reporters cover a campaign if they can't actually cover it? Well, I think that's going to be the question now of the remainder of 2020. There will be a lot more phone calls. Maybe <laughs> I've floated with a few of my colleagues the idea of Skyping, um, which is something that we'll have to get used to for face-to-face -face contact. Emailing, of course. We'll have to get creative, though. I mean, you know, there's, there's no real answer yet as to how long um, we will be practicing social distancing. And now that we've seen public figures across the world who have contracted the virus, I mean, the, the, the possibilities here are endless, but we really will have to consider exactly how we're going to go about reporting and what it's going to look like. Ruby, is there any guidance from the folks that you work with on, on how to cover this campaign going forward? Uh, I've been told that only essential travel is allowed. Um, and uh, on the trail this past week, before everybody kind of got sent home, there was a lot of uh, anxiety, I would say, mounting anxiety among the reporters just about being in these large crowds. Mm. Um, it's not it's not something that you want. It's not a layer of stress you want on top of the already very stressful uh, environment of a campaign and of a presidential race and of these right. large crowds to begin with. Um, I think we'll be seeing some tele town halls and virtual rallies. Who knows what that will look like? Well, Joel, Maya, Ruby, I want to thank you all so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. On Tuesday, Joe Biden easily won the Democratic primary in Michigan, carrying every single county in the state. 
We also know Michigan's a battleground state that Biden is focused on winning in 2020. For his part, President Trump is counting on the continuing support from blue-collar voters who supported him in 2016. One of those voters, Michael Taylor, is the mayor of Sterling Heights, the fourth largest city in Michigan. He describes Sterling Heights to me as a blue-collar town where two automotive plants are among the biggest employers. Almost four years ago, Mayor Taylor, a lifelong Republican, said he reluctantly cast his vote for President Trump. This week, right before the primary, Taylor endorsed Joe Biden. I started by asking him to explain why he voted to support Trump in 2016, despite his misgivings about him. As he got the nomination, I slowly talked myself in. You know, I I thought, well, there's going to be conservative Supreme Court justices that could be appointed. And that's a that's important to me. Uh, there there could be deregulation and, and he could do things that could help the local economy here. So that could be good for me. You know, he might he might do some things with tax reform and that would be good for me. Um, so I slowly talked myself in, even dis- despite the fact that I knew that he was behaving so irrationally. And he was a man that I did not I could not tell my kids to look up to. And I didn't think he was a man of high moral character, but I talked myself into voting for him because that's what Republicans do. We vote for Republicans. And, uh, you know, the regret set set in pretty quickly for me, instead of going on uh, social media to uh, criticize and belittle his opponents with childish nicknames, maybe he'll actually do uh, some good and roll up his sleeves and work with the Democrats to, to, do all these things that he wants to do to, quote unquote, make America great again. Well, that was just a fantasy. And I should have never thought it in the first place because that's not what's happening. Except uh, on the issues that you noted earlier that were really important to you, deregulation, tax cuts, conservative judges, he has followed through on all of those things. So what is the part for you that you said, well, that was just a fantasy? The fantasy was that he would temper his behavior, that he wouldn't use his platform to belittle and demean people, uh, call them childish nicknames, that he would surround himself with competent people that knew how to do the job, that he would listen to advice, that he would take criticism and improve himself. And he's not doing any of that. And it's really the, to me, it's the character that he lacks. When he does something wrong, he refuses to take blame. He blames everyone else for his own failings. All of these defects overweigh any good that he's doing. Up until just recently, the stock market was doing great. The local economy was great. And frankly, I think it was happening uh, despite President Trump, because now there is a real crisis of leadership in the White House. And I think you're seeing it with this coronavirus pandemic that's happening is that the markets, the governors, the local elected officials, the business owners, I don't think the employees, I don't think anybody trusts President Trump to navigate us through this. And so you came out and you officially endorsed Joe Biden before the primary. Yes. Okay. Now, If Joe Biden is elected, he is going to undo a lot of the things, theoretically, undo a lot of the things that you say are important to you. There's too high a cost to 
have President Trump in office anymore. The soul of our country, as Vice President Biden talks about, is at stake. And and that's so much more important than my 401k or than, you know, deregulating or even conservative justices. So, as you said, there seemed to be a lot of that, that Trump continues to hold on to voters there. How can Joe Biden win them over? A couple of ways. First of all, he's got to go. He's got to come to Macomb County. I can't stress that enough. He's got to come to Macomb County and he's got to talk to people here and he's got to reassure them that all the good that's been going on in the local economy here, all the manufacturing jobs, all of the uh, the, there have been wage increases here that he's not only going to continue that, he's going to improve on that and he's got to give specifics about how he can do that. Voters here in Macomb County, I think, thought of Hillary Clinton as somebody who um, was unapproachable, somebody who they didn't share a whole lot in common with, whereas Joe Biden, I think, has that everyday man quality, that he's somebody that uh, you can relate to. He's had tragedy in his, in his life, and he's handled it gracefully. There are a lot of families here in, in every town USA have had that sort of a tragedy in their life. They've been down. They've lost a job. You know, they've lost a loved one. And I think they can uh, see that Joe Biden is somebody with empathy that uh, that they can trust. Let's switch gears here a little bit. We've talked about your concern with what you see as a lack of leadership coming from the president. Are you worried as well about the economic impact coronavirus will have on your constituents? Oh, without question. Absolutely. It's I mean, it keeps you up at night. And um we, we, like I said, we don't know where this is going, but there is going to be a definite impact on uh, our local economy. Um, you know, when you are encouraging people to not show up to large events, you know, we've got banquet halls in the city. Mm-hmm. We've got shopping malls. Uh, we've got uh, large public gathering places. We, we have you know, we've got four automotive plants that employ thousands of people, and there are thousands of people inside the automotive plant at any given time. Those aren't the kind of jobs that you can work remotely from. You know, we're not Google or we don't have Google or Apple or Facebook here where, you know, right. you can encourage people to stay home. Right. So, you know, those plants are still open. Um, but any disruption in the supply chain, any disruption in the economy has a ripple effect that's hard to mitigate. And so I I see the president's trying to do some sort of a payroll tax cut. I think that what he needs to do is he needs to ensure the public that there are tests available, that that he's empowering local public health officials to do what they can, that there's a plan in place for communities that have an outbreak. And that's what it's going to take to um, to calm the the markets and let people know that there's that they can have confidence in the economy. But uh, I don't know what to say. I mean, there's are there going to be layoffs? Are there going to be plant closures? Are there going to be um, reductions? Yeah. And how are they how are our how is our local economy going to survive that? We're going to do everything we can, but but we're limited in, in what our options and resources are. Are they really talking about those sorts of things, about closing down the factories or at least adjusting shifts and things like that? Has that happened yet? I have not heard anything about that yet, Mm -hmm. but the governor is encouraging businesses 
and communities and schools and private organizations to limit groups of 100 or more. So the governor sent something out last night saying that uh, your community action plan should be activated and uh, uh, you should be closing these down. There, it has not been an edict and there's not been any any word from the governor's office that it's a requirement that those just that it's in, that we are encouraged to do that. And so we we are following her advice for for workplaces where you have more than 100 employees I don't know what they're going to do about that. Well, Michael Taylor, thank you so much for taking time with me to talk through this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Michael Taylor is the Republican mayor of Sterling Heights in Macomb County. Carnegie Hall has welcomed a dizzying array of performers. To have Andy Kaufman, Frank Zappa, and Birkett Nielsen and Horowitz on the same stage, it becomes this kaleidoscope of our history. I'm Jessica Bosk. Join me for the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk. It's all about our unique cultural history, as witnessed by one of New York's most beloved institutions, Carnegie Hall. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. Since 2016, there have probably been a lot more legislation than normal um, changing voting requirements or or technology around voting. And I think that that's just because 2016 was sort of a wake-up call for a lot of election administrators. That's Jessica Hoosman. She covers voting rights and election administration for ProPublica. She's also the lead reporter for ProPublica's Election Land Project. I wanted to talk with Jessica about all the changes and their potential effect on voting and voter turnout this election. I'm actually quite optimistic about the changes that have happened mm. in the last four years. Um, you know, their election day 2018 was a real step forward um, in election administration. There were several states that passed laws that will make it quite a bit easier to vote in those states. So, for example, three states passed same day or automatic voter registration measures, which will make it a lot easier for people to register to vote in those states. Um, So Maryland, Michigan, and Nevada will be adopting those things. And then in Colorado, Michigan, and Missouri, um, they passed measures to limit um, gerrymandering, usually through a independent commission that will be drawing the boundaries, which means that parties won't have the power to to do those those sorts of things. And, and you know, I think that, that these are all really meaningful step forwards. Are we looking at a partisan divide here, blue states looking different than red states in terms of voter access and ease with which you can register and, and vote? You know, not necessarily. I think that a lot of these these states are are, are swing states, even um, you know, closer to the middle than than you'd think. And I and I also think that um, people tend to think about ease of access to voting in in terms of party affiliation, right. and and I don't know that that really reflects the reality on the ground. So, for example, let's let's take Texas and New York. Um, so I would proffer that it's actually quite a lot easier to vote in the state of Texas than it is in the state of New York. And New York has passed some interesting laws in the last year that have opened it up. Um, But this year was the first year that New York had any early voting whatsoever. It is also the first year that you could vote in the state of New York in a place that was not your precinct at home. Mm. That has not been the case in Texas for several years. New York has also still does not have no excuse absentee ballots. So if you can't vote on election day or during early voting, um, then 
and and you don't fall into a sev- like several sets of categories, then you just can't vote. Talk to us about the second set of laws, the laws that have been passed in legislatures to make it harder to vote. There have been a couple of states, and, and the one that stand out to me the most are Florida and New Hampshire. In Florida, we saw in 2018 the electorate pretty resoundingly voted to restore the voting rights for several thousand felons in the state. And since that happened, the Republican legislature has been sort of very carefully rolling that back. Um, And, you know, they've made it so that they cannot vote until they've paid their fines and restitution, which for a lot of these voters is is cost prohibitive and has prevented them from going to the polls. Um, You know, there have been counties in that state that have been dealing with this issue individually. Um, So a lot of the bigger, more urban counties have been waiving these fees, which automatically re-enfranchises these these voters. Um, But now what you're seeing is is very much a urban-rural divide, um, which has translated to a party divide in Florida. Um, In New Hampshire, there have been measures passed in the last couple of years that have made it increasingly harder to vote if you're a student. Um, That state had unique residency laws on the books um, that sort of distinguished between people who were living in the state and then also had residency there. And you could only vote if you were established as a as a as a New Hampshire resident or um, you and there, you know, there weren't as many sort of residency requirements in New Hampshire by by law. Um, You, for example, did not have to have a New New Hampshire ID or uh, register your car, for example, in New Hampshire. If it was registered in another state, that was okay. Um, And so and they've sort of rolled that back. And, And so students who tend to not register their car in New Hampshire or not get a New Hampshire driver's license, but perhaps would still want to be politically active in the state that they live most of the year, um, it, it's it's just harder for them to vote now. They have to establish more of these residency um, the steps than, than they otherwise would. And, and these are the kind of things that you see sort of popping up around the country as well. Curious, the states or municipalities that you are going to be monitoring most closely between now and November? So I think that I still have a lot of concerns about North Carolina. Um, the The tone in that state is, is troubling to me. Um, I, I think that the legislature there, more than any other legislature in the country, tends to be sort of hellbent on making it harder to vote. Um, I'm also going to be paying close attention to Florida um, just because I think that the the issues around felon reenfranchisement there have been troubling to see from mm. a um, from a reporter's perspective. You know, the the popular vote reenfranchised lots of people only for a legislature that is in theory voted in by the exact same people to sort of compromise their will. Um, so that's been troubling for mm. me. I think perhaps I'm biased because I'm based in Austin, but I'm also going to be keeping an eye on Texas. Um, you know, Texas's voter ID law continues to be problematic and confusing for a lot of voters. Um, the state continues to sort of, the counties in the state continue to to reduce the number of polling places um, and voter technology here varies very drastically by county. And so some counties are, are much more prepared to deal with the realities of 2020 than others. Um, so I'm going to be taking a, a, a bit of time to look at that more closely as well. Jessica Hoosman is lead reporter for ProPublica's Election Land Initiative. 
we asked you if it's becoming more or less difficult to vote in your community. Here's what you're telling us. My name is Kathy Schiffer. I live in Sacramento, California, and we have been voting absentee um, since 2008, and um, I love it. It's very easy. The ballot comes in the mail, and you stick it back in the mail or take it to a ballot box of your choice. There's no line. There's no not even any postage if you don't want to pay it. I'm calling from Garland, Texas. I was very surprised how easy voting was this year. Uh, Probably because I live in a white neighborhood. Then I see on the news in the neighborhoods where there are many minorities, they're waiting six to seven hours. So clearly, however they're setting up these voting situations, it's not equal depending on your neighborhood. And it's really sad to see. Hi, this is John from Portland, Oregon. Here in Oregon, we have vote by mail. It's only become easier when the governor allowed vote by mail with what we call motor voter. If you have a driver's license, you're automatically registered to vote. Keep the calls coming. The number to dial, 877-8-MY-TAKE. The coronavirus has eclipsed all other news and has caused the cancellation of major sporting events, religious services, and other mass gatherings. And it feels like this is just the beginning. So in these uncertain times, I thought it would be a good idea to talk to my friend Reed Wilson. He's a national correspondent at The Hill, and he chronicled the Ebola epidemic in his book, Epidemic, Ebola and the Global Scramble to Prevent the Next Killer Outbreak. I asked him how the response to Ebola compares to the response so far on COVID-19. These are less parallel than they are perpendicular in that the outbreak of Ebola in West Africa required 3,000 American troops and another three or 4,000 uh, first responders, you know, CDC people and uh, uh, nonprofit groups going over to West Africa uh, to fight the virus there so it didn't come here. Mm. This time, this virus is already here. And it is, is spreading through the community uh, in, in states across the country. There are various estimates for how many people are infected uh, already. But I'll tell you, it is way higher than the number of confirmed cases uh, that already exist. Uh, give you an example. My hometown of Seattle, there are 337 confirmed cases in Washington state as of yesterday. Uh, the mayor of Seattle told me that their models show that there are at least 1,100 cases that are actually out there. Now, that's bad news in that we don't know everybody who is infected so that we can uh, help contain the, the spread of the virus. But it's good news in that the that 800 person difference between the number of confirmed cases and the number of probable actual cases, that gap there means they're probably having moderate symptoms and they're probably not showing up at hospitals seeking treatment. So that tells you that the virus is not as bad in, in mortality wise as Ebola. It's not as deadly as the Ebola virus, but mm -hmm. it's a lot more transmissible. There are parallels uh, between sort of what, what needs to be done and what some of the experts are, are urging the administration really strongly to do, which is to share expertise, make everybody aware of the, the dangers and the threats, and therefore how to prepare and how to stay safe. Um, but the, the parallels between how the two administrations are actually acting in response to this outbreak, that's wildly different. Can you talk about the response this administration is having to coronavirus 
Well, there's a hospital in Seattle that's got north of 30 cases of the coronavirus right now and is the epicenter of at least a quarter of the deaths that we've experienced in the United States. This is, this is the thing about this outbreak that I'm really worried about the most. We have a healthcare system that doesn't have the capacity to treat more than about 900,000 people at a time in beds. And this is why you're hearing more and more epi epidemiologists talk about flattening the curve. When an, when an epidemic breaks out, it can follow one of two paths. It can, it can infect a lot of people really quickly, and then in, in, in that case it spikes and then sort of gently recedes. Or it can infect a lot of people, but over a very long period of time. And that's if we practice the social distancing and the washing our hands and canceling events and things like that. If, if a lot of people get sick really soon or re in a short period of time, then the healthcare system can get overwhelmed and a lot of people don't get treated. That's what we're seeing in Italy right now, where doctors are having to triage patients and basically decide who gets a ventilator and who doesn't. Now, that's a really scary concept if you're the one who doesn't. Uh, th but the fact is, a lot of people are going to get this virus uh, and, and it needs to be over the longest possible period of time. Well, it seems like another issue here, Reed, is how are we supposed to know who is infected and who's not? And the only way to understand that would be with testing. And um, what can you tell us about why we do not have an ability to test people like they do in a place like South Korea. Their capacity to test on a daily basis is greater than the number of people that, that the United States has tested overall. This is going to be the subject of the congressional hearings and the the, the autopsies and the, the lookbacks, the postmortems that we uh, that we all do after this virus uh, subsides. This is an an unimaginable failure of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and it is on them. Uh, the World Health Organization had a test that they distributed to and, and made available to countries like China, which has tested hundreds of thousands of people, and Korea, and Italy, and, and everywhere else. Um, this test was available, and the United States, for some reason, decided to come up with their own test. And their own test was flawed in some measure, but it is a catastrophic failure and one that is going to reverberate for years, one that's going to undermine trust in American health institutions. It, it is mind-boggling that this has happened, um, that the CDC didn't have its act together when the rest of the world, when third world countries had their act more together than the American CDC did. It, it, it truly, it makes me see red. And then there's, of course, the political angle to this and everything else. And in an interview this week on Fresh Air, there was healthcare reporter Dan Diamond from Politico. He implied that President Trump didn't push for aggressive testing earlier because if you identify more cases, then the numbers would be bad. And that's not good for his political standing. What do you make of that? And have you heard or reported on anything similar? So the evidence points to the fact that this administration is trying to keep information about this outbreak secret. Uh, Reuters reported on uh, Thursday that the administration uh, had ordered health and human services officials to treat briefings about the coronavirus as if they were top secret. Um, and now we've now I mean Dan's got a really good point there uh, about the the fact that I mean the president himself said that he wanted to keep uh, patients on a cruise ship instead of in the U.S. so that the quote numbers could stay down. Um, I mean this is this is amazingly short sighted of this president. Although it's it's a pattern that he's repeated over and over. He goes for the short sort of short sighted sugar high rather than the sustained long term uh, benefit here. I mean contrast this with President Obama who 
stood in front of cameras and said, look, the Ebola virus is out there and we're really uh, we're, we're doing all we can about it. I mean, that was the thing that struck me about Trump's speech, by the way, is he started out with what they had done and then what the virus was, as opposed to what the threat was and then what the government had was was going to do about it. But this president pursues this short term, uh, short sighted goal of keeping the markets up and and winning praise from his his subordinates, frankly, uh, instead of spreading expertise, uh, spreading information, leveling with the American people and telling them how to protect themselves. Reed Wilson, thanks so much for coming in and talking with me today. You got it. Reed Wilson is national correspondent at The Hill and author of Epidemic, Ebola and the Global Scramble to Prevent the Next Killer Outbreak. One more thing for me today. The political reality of the last three and a half years has been one of both chaos and consistency. Almost every week, an event or issue or moment looks like it may upend our current political status or rattle the economy. But until now, nothing, not a government shutdown, nor impeachment, nor a tempestuous tweet had been enough to spook the markets or alter opinions of this president. Meanwhile, our media cycle and attention spans have gotten shorter and shorter, which only serve to lessen their long-term repercussions. Coronavirus, however, may be our first truly disruptive event in this so-called disruptive era. The markets are obviously spooked. The question is how long it will take for consumers to be worried as well. In February, a Gallup poll found economic confidence at its highest point in 20 years. But a couple weeks of canceled sporting events, school functions, and even trips to the local mall will be enough to dampen it. And it's likely that the economic impact lasts longer than even our social distancing. Lost income and retirement savings can't be made up immediately. The biggest unknown, of course, is just how long this current crisis will last. Will we be still talking about the coronavirus this summer? Or will this have been a painful but short-lived blip? The last four years have taught us to think that there's no such thing as long-term consequences. But if we have learned anything else over these four years, it's that old assumptions we've made, even if they're only three years old, may not hold in this fast-changing moment. This is even truer when it comes to the personal health, safety, and economic well-being of millions of people. That's all for us today. The show is produced by Amber Hall and Patricia Jacob. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer. Vince Fairchild is our engineer. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our administrative assistant. And our executive producer is Lee Hill. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. <laughs>